This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. But what we're talking about, somebody who is presumably wrongfully convicted and has been in prison for 13 years. I mean, how can you sleep at night? This is part two of Justice Delayed about Mark Purnell's struggle to be released from prison after he was convicted of a crime he did not commit. If you haven't listened to part one, we recommend you go back and do that now, before you listen to part two. When we left off in part one, it was spring of 2021. The Delaware Supreme Court issued a landmark decision overturning Mark Purnell's 14-year-old murder conviction. This was the first time the court overturned a conviction and granted a new trial based on evidence of actual innocence. Mark and his pro bono lawyers, Tiffany Hurst and Herb Mondros, were absolutely thrilled. Yelling about the amazing victory, and he started yelling, and they were screams of joy, and, you know, I was jumping up and down and he was probably doing the same thing and it was just an absolutely amazing moment that I will never forget. I'm sure Mark asked you what now, what next? What did you think would happen next? What did you think the prosecutors would do about the new trial? So it wasn't so much what I thought as it was what I hoped. I hoped that they would take a cue (laughs) from the court, from the Delaware Supreme Court, and decide that they were not going to pursue this matter any further. But that was not how things went. When that 134-page opinion dismantling the state's trial case against Purnell came down, we all thought that that was the, you know, we would be picking Mark up at the prison momentarily, and the state was obviously going to dismiss the charges. That is not what happened. In this episode, you'll learn that Mark's nightmare was far from over when his conviction was overturned. But fortunately for Mark... Delaware had an innocence project by 2021, and they made sure he had another excellent team of pro bono attorneys to handle the final phase in his long pursuit of justice. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, the Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast.
Mark had been sitting in prison for more than 13 years. The Delaware Supreme Court called his trial and conviction, quote, manifestly unfair. And remember, that court took the unusual step of granting a new trial immediately because Mark showed compelling evidence that he was innocent. After that opinion came down, no one knew if the local prosecutors would push forward with the case or drop it. So Mark had to prepare, prepare for a whole new trial process. And I can imagine that he would have been pretty skeptical of any attorney assigned to him after what he had been put through by past appointed lawyers, one with a serious conflict and one with a serious health problem. So Mark needed lawyers he could trust for that retrial. And he had terrific pro bono lawyers for the appellate process. But Herb isn't a criminal trial attorney, so he wasn't the right person to do it. And Tiffany's expertise is in post-conviction relief, so she wasn't quite the right person to do it either. Who was going to help Mark with the new trial? To explain how Mark got the lawyers he needed for the retrial, we need to know about the newly formed Innocence Project at the Delaware Law School, which was co-founded by Herb Mondros during the same time that he and Tiffany were working on Mark's case. Because before Mark's case, Herb had already helped reverse the convictions of two other men. And in March of 2017, Herb and one of those clients a client who had previously been on Delaware's death row, went to a national exoneree conference together. And it was a typical conference where they did typical conference things like listen to speakers and hang out by the pool. And Herb was struck by just how far they had come together. It was in San Diego and there I was with my my client, who well, the first 50 times I saw him, he was wearing an orange jumpsuit and shackles. And we're there with the San Diego shirt and sitting in the uh, the hot tub, just thinking about how, how far we had come together. And I came back from the Innocence Network conference and thought, you know, it seemed to me that Delaware was the only state that was either didn't have its own Innocence Project or wasn't encompassed in one of the other regional projects. Herb contacted his friend and colleague, Delaware Law School professor Judy Ritter, and got her thinking about the good they could do with an innocence project in Delaware. I've known Judy for, for many years, and I, I know what she's capable of, and I just sort of threw the idea at her. What do you think? We could have an innocence project here in Delaware. And she was completely receptive and brought the resources of Delaware Law School and the people she knew there, and the rest is history. I'm Judy Ritter, and I am a professor of law at Delaware Law School in Wilmington, Delaware. I've been doing that for about 27 years now, and I am the president of the board of directors for Innocence Delaware. Well, we've opened our doors to taking cases and taking requests for representation since for just really about two and a half years now. How do you staff the cases? So far, every case that we've done has been with co-counsel. And the co-counsel have been pro bono lawyers. So in 2021, when Mark was confronted with that new trial, the new Delaware Innocence Project was the obvious place to ask for help. 
it occurred to me that, you know, my expertise, I'm not going to go try a murder case in, in Delaware court. It wouldn't serve the client. So I reached out to the Innocence Project of, of Delaware. The, the board considered it and agreed to get involved in in Mark's trial. One of our board members is Alan Stone from Millbank. The organization reached out to Millbank and they could not have been more eager to get involved. Let's meet two more of Mark Purnell's pro bono lawyers, both from Millbank's New York City office, who were recruited to handle the case after the Delaware Supreme Court remanded for a new trial. My name is Alan Stone. I'm a partner here at Millbank, and I've been practicing law for about 35 years. And my main area of focus is corporate governance and corporate litigation. I'm Matt LaRoche. I'm special counsel at Millbank, and I've been practicing for about 12 years. And my my main focus is white-collar investigations. I've been back at Millbank for about a year, and I was a federal prosecutor for about six and a half years before that. How did each of you get involved with this case? I am on the board of Innocence Project Delaware. I practiced law in Delaware before I came to Millbank for almost 20 years. And so the very first case that uh, Innocence Project had was was the, the Purnell case. But they wanted a firm with a lot of muscle to come in and actually do that trial. And our pro bono director, Tony Casino, and I went down to Smyrna, Delaware and visited with Mark and came away thinking there's no question we should do this case. I always rely on people with a lot more criminal law experience than I have. And I said to Tony on the way back, we need to get Matt LaRoche involved. Tony and Alan approached me about the case and I was thrilled to have the opportunity. I mean, one thing Tony said at the outset was, you know, you should read the the Delaware Supreme Court's decision before you decide whether or not, you know, you're interested. And after I did, it was just, I was very grateful that they asked because it was obviously, as Alan said, a, a case that very much called out for good representation for Mark. So tell me about what struck you about him when you met him. I was impressed by the fact that Mark was, you know, really had kind of a strong character in the sense that, you know, he had been through essentially a trauma for all those years. And he basically said, look, I didn't do this. He, at the time of his original trial, was offered a plea for eight years. And he rejected it and said, I wasn't going to admit to something that I didn't do. Mark was offered a plea for eight years when he was first charged in 2007, but he turned it down because he was innocent. By the time he met Alan Stone, Mark had spent more than 13 years in prison. When you hear stories like that, you can understand why his co-defendant was scared to go to trial and why his co-defendant would agree to tell a story about Mark in return for a three-year sentence. I asked Matt to remind us of the major things that went wrong for Mark and made his conviction manifestly unfair. In January of 2006, a woman named Tamika Giles was shot by two assailants. And uh, an eyewitness identified one assailant as an individual named Ronald Harris. There was no evidence tying Mark to the crime. Neither eyewitness identified Mark, and there's no physical evidence connecting him to the murder. As you may recall from part one, there were two serious problems with Mark's prosecution. One, a startling conflict of interest for his lawyer, who had represented another suspect in a related gun case. And two, 
Mark's pretty clear alibi that he was recovering from major knee surgery at the time of Tamika's murder. And Mark had also actually been shot himself a week before the murder, which is important because all the medical evidence showed that he was unable to walk at the time of the murder. He had to use crutches. And that was important because the only eyewitness eyewitnesses said that the, the perpetrators ran full speed from the crime, which obviously could not have been Mark. And one of the, the real injustices in Mark's first trial, which was a huge reason that the Delaware Supreme Court overturned turned his case, was that his trial counsel was severely conflicted. His trial counsel represented an individual named Dewan Harris, who is the brother of, of Ronald Harris. That Delaware Supreme Court decision, what did you think or how did you react when you read the decision? I was shocked. I was shocked because several of the practices and the conduct of both law enforcement and the prosecutors was just extraordinary in my view. And I think the Delaware Supreme Court said that with respect to how juvenile witnesses were treated, with respect to the level of evidence at which they decided it was sufficient to charge Mark and others with you know, the most serious offense you can, where you're going to take someone's liberty away for the rest of their lives. I was shocked at some of the, the statements made by prosecutors at the time with respect to the conflict issue, which which came up immediately before trial. And I was shocked at some of the, the statements that were made during trial by prosecutors, which were, as the Supreme Court said, just false and wrong and went to some of the core issues in the case. When I read the, the, the decision, it was, to me, it just struck me as an extraordinary situation. When I first got on the case and I said it, you know, I, I just approached it assuming that we were going to get, you know, based on that decision, a response from the state that reflected the level of seriousness and diligence that the situation required given that decision. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think we ever got that. But that's mm-hmm. that's where I started to share some of those emotions of outrage when when it really, you know, I just think they, they did not fulfill their obligations here even remotely. Right. It's, so is that because you thought, oh, the system has finally kicked in? It's caught up to the real facts. And so I expect upstanding prosecutors will see what has happened and walk away from this prosecution. The system should have kicked in a long time ago, for sure. But yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. My perspective was, you know, new prosecutors, I think we all expected that they'd approach it, you know, with a level of diligence and seriousness and good faith that the that the case required, given what had happened. And, you know, if it was me, you know, as a prosecutor, I'd like to believe that I'd be like, we're not prosecuting this case. I mean, there's just no basis to do it. This is something that bothered me, too. Our system is supposed to have many protections to prevent injustice. And one important protection is prosecutors. According to the Delaware Rules of Professional Conduct, prosecutors have a special ethical duty to act as, quote, ministers of justice not just advocates. They literally have a duty not to prosecute charges that are not supported by probable cause. Remember, the Delaware Supreme Court's decision overturning Mark's conviction was based on substantial evidence of actual innocence. Not unreasonably, the Delaware Innocence Project thought there might not be any retrial at all. At the time that we got involved, it was coming up on the deadline for the prosecutors 
to determine whether they were going to retry the case. And this is this is one of the, the most outrageous things, I think, in the entire case, is that these new prosecutors, who you would think, having read this opinion, would say, we're not going to bat on this one. The trial court had given them 60 days after the mandate issued on the case to determine whether they would retry the case. And so... When I got involved, the Innocence Project said, you know, it may not be that there's going to be a trial because these folks may wise up and decide they're not going to try it. But it's also kind of embarrassing for the state. So there's some there's some chance that they will, will do it. So the first thing that happened was, indeed, they wrote a letter to the court saying we're going to retry the case. What came to light later through our efforts was that I don't think they even picked up the file to look at it between the date of the opinion and the date that they wrote their letter. Where was Mark while all this was happening? Because he, his conviction had been overturned and he was up for retrial. So did he get to go home while all of this shenanigans was happening? No, we did try to have him released on bail and that was initially denied. So Mark is sitting in jail. The prosecutor is pushing forward. And the Milbank team is going to bat for Mark, trying to give him the kind of investigation and defense that no one gave him the first time around. I asked Alan what he meant when he said it later came to light that the prosecutors likely didn't review the file before deciding to keep Mark in prison and proceed with the retrial. In the course of our discovery fights, they admitted to the court that they had not reviewed this, that, and the other thing, and that they, they didn't know where they were. <laughs> they did the, the, the transcripts and videos, the interviews were an example. They said, we haven't even looked for them yet. Now, you would have thought that in that 60-day period, they would have been doing some homework to decide all of these issues that this Delaware Supreme Court had identified, what the evidence was on those, and whether you know, there, there really was room to retry this case. But they apparently had done absolutely nothing. I'm guessing they're underfunded and overworked, and they have a lot of cases, right? But what we're talking about somebody who is presumably wrongfully convicted and has been in prison for 13 years. I mean, how can you sleep at night? Just to be clear, in our criminal justice system, the prosecutors and the police work together. The police may start an investigation, but once someone is charged, the prosecutors and police are a team. Anything the police have, the prosecutors are deemed to have it too. In Mark's retrial, the prosecutors tried to claim that they had not turned over material from the investigation to his new lawyers because they didn't have it. The police did, which told Alan and Matt that they hadn't even tried to look at the material when deciding whether to push forward with the retrial. That's what got me. I, I think when I when I really was starting to get my outrage scale was was reaching top was when, as Alan said, it just became abundantly clear. I mean, on the record during the conference, I think the quote was, well, Judge, that file's at the police department. We, we don't have it in our possession. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa Judge, Judge, are we the only ones who are, who are just stunned by that incredibly inappropriate, legally incorrect statement. I mean, this is fundamental law here, Judge, which just kind of highlights the problem. That's in their possession. 
It's their job to go look. And they haven't done anything. The judge, the judge credit, judge's credit said, this is, this is not right. Like, you have to go get this done immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's when we really started to get some, some just core Brady disclosures that should have been disclosed 15 years ago that, that really just tipped the scales. Okay, so some of our listeners aren't lawyers, and some of our listeners are not criminal lawyers. It's been a long time since criminal law. So can you remind folks what the Brady standard is? Yeah, sure. It's, so Brady versus Maryland, a bedrock case for any prosecutor, is that the prosecution has an obligation at the most basic level to turn, o- turn over information that's helpful to the defense. Now, yeah, we, I mean, so we, you know, as, as I said, they started disclosing more and more materials and we were preparing a motion to dismiss the indictment on, on grounds related to the late disclosures and speedy trial issues. We, we end up getting what is really just a, a bombshell disclosure. I don't think I'm overusing that term, even though it sometimes gets overused, but essentially we get, we get provided without any explanation, a recorded witness statement from 15 years ago where the witness says, and to the lead case detective on video, Dewan Harris told me several times that he shot Tamika Giles and, you know, he said he killed her and I'm prepared to testify that he told me that. First time ever disclosed to the defense in March of 2022. I agree with Matt. He is not overusing the term bombshell to describe that disclosure. A witness in 2007 was prepared to testify that Dewan Harris repeatedly admitted to Tamika's murder. And that videoed witness statement was apparently never turned over to Mark's lawyer in the first trial. Remember, Dewan was the person with whom Mark's lawyer had a conflict of interest. Dewan had a gun at the time of Tamika's murder. And Dewan looked nearly identical to Mark's co-defendant, who had been identified in a photo lineup by a witness. There can be times where it's tricky to figure out whether this is helpful or that's not helpful. In a murder case where the Delaware Supreme Court has already said that there are prime alternative suspects, including Dewan Harris, and you have a witness statement sitting in your back pocket that is, Dewan Harris told me he did it. I mean, there is nothing more clearly Brady material than that. And that should be immediately turned over. They also represented to us that they had, quote, not identified any Brady material in their file before this. And they're just sitting on this because they, to Alan's point earlier, they just hadn't looked. They hadn't looked. And so we get this disclosure among numerous others. We file a motion, you know, highlighting this. Can I dilate just on one second on that disclosure? Because I think that there's Another part of the story that is equally outrageous, which is that there was a partial transcript of the interview of that witness that was produced by the police. In the original trial? In, in, in the original trial, right. And okay. uh, it was just, it was on, on paper. It wasn't the video. And all it said was, Dewan T- Harris told me, you should have seen how she fell. Oh, yeah, I mean, the, that, that was the, it. So that, that doesn't, but, doesn't tell you anything about Mark's involvement or anyone else's. It just says you should have seen how she fell. Wait, because I just want to make sure this is clear because folks are listening and trying to take this in. Dewan Harris is the person with whom Mark's lawyer had a conflict. So correct. Couldn't ethically pursue. They have a 
partial transcript of an interview, which means they know they have the interview. Right. And the interview is another witness saying, Dewan Harris told me repeatedly he shot her. And between the original prosecutor and the original trial counsel, nothing happens in front of the court to produce or disclose the either the full transcript or the video. That's correct. I didn't think you could make me matter today, but you've done it. <laughs> because and I I know there's more coming. Okay. And and this video, did they produce it like I don't know, within a week after that hearing where the judge said you have to go look at this file, you've got to produce this stuff. How long did it take them to produce that for you? I, I think it's safe to say that we were absolutely relentless with pushing for discovery. And every time we'd push, we'd get more, a little bit more, but we didn't get everything. And it was pretty obvious. It wasn't that they were dragging their feet. It's just they weren't paying attention to this case. And at at some point, we thought we had enough and we filed this, this motion to dismiss the case. And the prosecutor's response was, I have a vacation planned, so Your Honor, can I respond, you know, in a month or something like that? It was pretty outrageous. Yeah, this is where it gets, I mean, we keep saying outrageous. Things keep getting more outrageous. This might be the most outrageous. So we file our motion in late March, file two motions, one to just dismiss the case. And the second related one is, listen, you should bail this guy. You should let Mark out. While you, while you sort this out, almost immediately after we file, we learn that Mark's mom is, is going to pass and imminently. And they're keeping her alive as long as possible in the hope that Mark might be able to visit her in person. And so we make an emergency motion. There's a part of Delaware law that allows a furlough for a day to go visit a dying family member. And we say, Judge, you know, please you know, release him for the day, just release him for a day so he can see his mother. The state opposes that. They essentially defer to the Department of Correction, which makes us want to pull our hair out as well. So there's an emergency hearing that the judge essentially defers to the Department of Correction who says, you know, we're, we're, we're not inclined to grant this request. Okay. I mean, incredibly disappointing for Mark, obviously, especially since, you know, what we just discovered, the motions we just filed, everything. So the night after that hearing, we get a call from the state prosecutor saying, essentially, we want to make a plea offer. <laughs> and, you know, it was fun to us as a very generous offer where they will let Mark get out of jail you know, immediately after he pleads. So essentially a time served plea. All he has to do is admit to second degree murder. Mark's mom is dying. They are keeping her alive in hopes he can get out to visit her. The prosecutor's won't agree to bail, and they won't agree to a one-day furlough. But knowing full well how anxious he is to see her, they do try to get him to take a plea that will allow him to leave prison immediately. This is after the original case was dismantled by the Delaware Supreme Court, after the court said there was substantial evidence of actual innocence, after the prosecutor handed over a video of a witness saying someone else admitted to the crime. I was, I was 
very angry with 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 how that happened. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like it was a very coercive situation, and, and I, I felt like they knew that. Now, Mark obviously doesn't take the plea. I mean, look, you say obviously didn't take it, but Mark has no reason to trust the system at this point in time. He might trust you two and the team. He's got no reason to trust the system. So the the strength of character for him to say, I'm not going to take it while his mom is on life support. It's a big deal. What happened with his mom? She passed. She passed about a week later, and he never he never got to see her. He also wanted to go to the funeral, and, and we, yeah. we asked if he could be let out for the funeral, and they, they refused. When you hear all of this, you can understand why Alan was so outraged that they made Mark sit in prison longer waiting for a response to the motion to dismiss while the prosecutor took a vacation. Fast forward a little bit. They are due to respond to our motion. So they're they're due to respond on April 29th. On April 28th, they dismiss the case. So they they file. I mean, this is where, you know, at first it's it's everybody's obviously thrilled. Mark gets out that night. It's everybody's happy. At the same time, it's also, you know, I think all of us were upset in terms of, of how it happened. They, they file you know, what's called an alley that, that officially dismisses their case, and they provide some reasons for it. One is that they said they couldn't, quote, <clears throat> ethically prosecute the case. To me, who, who, who had done the job, I, I just don't know how you can, you can do that and, and three weeks earlier offer a plea. If, if you're at a point where you can't ethically proceed, you cannot mm-hmm. contemplate accepting a guilty plea from a man right. that you can't ethically prosecute. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this just so clearly to me was not doing the right thing, that it was it was really disappointing. Obviously, we were thrilled for Mark and you know, just an incredible day for him to be out for the first time in 15 years, just just out of nowhere. You know, it's there's a paper filed and he's out. But at the same time, disappointing that that he had to go through that. And, uh, you know, not just the 15 years leading up to that, but the fact that he couldn't get out to see his mom Mm. before she passed was was really disappointing. And that I think you said earlier that the Innocence Project wanted a powerful, wealthy firm with muscle and intelligence and energy and a big staff to work on the case. And do you think this would have been achievable without you all bringing your talents and skills, but also the weight of Millbank to bear on the process? I, I don't know. It's hard to speculate about whether it would have been achievable otherwise, but I, I do know that having the heft of a firm like Millbank and a passionate, dedicated team that we had made all the difference in the world. I mean, it, it really did. The prosecutors essentially didn't know what hit them. Mm-hmm. So what's next for Mark? How is he doing? What's he looking to next? Well, at this point, he's just adjusting and keeping a pretty low profile. After Mark was released, he told the Delaware New Journal, I want to be successful and be a positive energy in this world. He said, I've got to prove right everyone that believed in me. And what are your reflections on this pro bono experience? Well, my reflection is that having lived in Delaware for for so long, people don't think about the fact 
in Delaware that it can happen there too. Uh, we don't have a perfect system. And right under your nose, you know, you can have this kind of outrageous misconduct on the part of institutions that we otherwise hope to trust and put a lot of faith in. So that's my reflection. Yeah, it's similar reflections. I think I think one maybe more positive one just relates to Mark. The part of Mark that really was refreshing was how positive mm-hmm. he is, even when he was we first talked to him and he'd been in for 15 years. And it was just, you know, there was obviously a lot of negatives for me in terms of seeing what I thought was really inappropriate conduct by folks doing a job that I used to do. But a positive reflection was how much someone who is a good person, who is willing to endure really, really hard times and and keep fighting, can have a positive outcome. And, And Mark really did that. And, you know, as much as I think we all worked as hard as we can for him. He is the reason he is where he is right now. He's the reason why he got out. I mean, he he could have, he could have, and not, nobody would have blamed him just given up a long time ago, and he never did. And so one reflection is just Mark. I think he's, a, he's an incredible person who, who very much deserves everything he's gotten and a lot more. It is actually agonizing to think about the level of effort that was required for Mark to continue to fight for his innocence. We heard Herb Mondros talk about how nothing went right for Mark, except when he took matters into his own hands. But actually, there were important things that went right for Mark eventually. The investigation and legal work by Tiffany Hurst and her colleagues at the Federal Defender. The connection with Herb Mondros and the new Innocence Project. The integrity of the Delaware Supreme Court justices who decided they had to do something. And the dogged determination of the Milbank team at retrial. These things very much went right for Mark. We just wish the system had done what it was supposed to do in the first place, in 2007 not in 2022. And there are plenty of other people like Mark who also didn't get justice the first time and need this kind of pro bono help. Because Mark is far from the only one with a compelling claim of innocence. That's why Herb Mondros and Professor Judy Ritter felt it was so important to create their chapter of the Innocence Project. And Mark Purnell's is far from the only case they work on. They are currently investigating more than 50 cases. I asked Judy to give me a sense of what it takes to decide whether an innocence claim has merit. The question is, how do you decide whether there's a compelling case of innocence? And it's not, it's not easy to do, and it takes a long time. And that's frustrating for everyone. It's frustrating for certainly for our clients and for us. You have to read long, long history of the case. If there's a trial, a trial transcript, and you have to investigate the claim of innocence. I mean, the claim of innocence is almost certainly going to have to involve new evidence of innocence in order to surmount the procedural obstacles in the law to get back into court years later. So you need great investigation. You need to, you know, you need to also think about 
how strong, because now the burden of proof, instead of being on the government, the burden of proof is on, you know, is on us, is on people trying to show a wrongful conviction. So you really have to see how strong the proof is, no matter how persuaded you are of, of innocence based on talking to a client and based on talking to their family or you know, you have to be able to turn that into proof. And so you're looking for the strength of the proof, the credibility of people that will show proof. If you can use DNA, that's wonderful, but not all cases involve. And the, you know, the horrible truth of it is that it does happen for lots of different reasons, but only a small number of those folks ever get any relief or get their cases heard. But about Herb, you know, Herb, I know you're very, of course, about interested in pro bono lawyering. Herb is such a amazing example, honestly, of someone who had busy civil practice, still does, and really almost never says no when asked to do work on behalf of someone who's wrongfully incarcerated. And that's been the case from, you know, the first case he worked on. And I think it's, you know, it's because he's become passionate about it, deeply passionate about it for, you know, reasons that I think, you know, we could understand. It just kind of got in my blood. And then when offered another opportunity to do it, I jumped at it. And of course, nothing succeeds like success. So then, you know, you, you pick a few guys up at jail, there's nothing, uh, no, no more of an adrenaline rush than that. When you hear your, you see your client walk out of the prison gates and you hear the, the banging on the walls of the inmates supporting him as they're as he's walking across the street into your arms. It's a, an amazing thing. There is an Innocence Project in every state. We'll link to the Innocence Network on the episode page. And if you want to understand the landscape of exonerations, you can learn about over 3,000 of them, including Mark Purnell's, on the National Registry of Exonerations. We'll link to that on the episode page, too. And if you are compelled by this story and you are looking for a way to contribute, contact your Innocence Project. You don't have to be a criminal lawyer. You don't have to handle the whole thing by yourself. Remember, there were more than 10 lawyers contributing in some way to Mark's case. You could be on someone's team, somebody with a compelling claim of innocence. You could help someone in prison to get the justice that has been too long delayed. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu slash pro bono.